0: You're listening to the SSPX podcast as we deliver the 2020 parish mission virtually here on SSPXpodcast.com by replaying a parish mission that was delivered in 2016 by Father Stephen McDonald at St. Isidore's Priory in Denver, Colorado. Father McDonald is continuing the theme of participation in our own salvation, talking about the heavenly reward that is promised to us, the doctrine of heaven, as explained by St. Paul. If you would like more of these parish mission episodes and more reflections and audio lectures, uh, questions with Father, and much more, please visit SSPXpodcast.com. And there you can also find more information about how to subscribe to the SSPX podcast if you have not done so already. That way you'll receive uh, these lectures and more uh, in your podcast app or program automatically. Now, let's turn to Father Stephen MacDonald in 2016. So far during this parish mission, we have seen Christ's victory over sin, as well as our need for conversion, our vocation to desire Christ, a metanoia, a true turning to God, a true turning to our Lord Jesus Christ, a true generosity in serving God. Of course, God, though, is never outdone in generosity. He promises us a great reward for our victory over sin. If we do battle, if we overcome sin, if we embrace a life of virtue and love and charity, our Lord promises us a great reward. And that reward, of course, is a resurrection into eternal life in heaven, a true resurrection a transforming of ourselves into Christ, what St. Paul would call a sharing in the whole Christ. And so this evening, we're going to consider, firstly, St. Paul's doctrine on heaven itself being the final reward for our battle in this world. Christ's resurrection, of course, is the model of our own resurrection. It is the surest proof of our resurrection I quote you from his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15. Now, if Christ is preached as risen from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, neither has Christ risen. And if Christ has not risen, vain then is our preaching. Vain too is your fate. Yes, and we are found false witnesses as to God, and that we have borne witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, neither has Christ risen, and if Christ is not risen, vain is your faith, for you are still in your sins. Hence they also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If with this life only in view we have had hope in Christ, we are of all men the most to be pitied. But as it is, Christ has risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also comes resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the surest proof that we too are called to a life of resurrection, that someday we will gain eternal life. And thus, this promise of heaven, this promise of victory, Should constantly be before our eyes, should constantly help us in our desire to gain that eternal life. And we should be willing, according to St. Paul, we should be willing to pay whatever price is asked of us in order to gain this eternal glory, this eternal reward, this eternal victory. Again, I quote from now this, his second epistle to the Corinthians. Chapter 4. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves merely as your servants in Christ. For God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give enlightenment concerning the knowledge of the glory of God shining on the face of Christ Jesus. Wherefore, we do not lose heart. On the contrary, even though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our present light affliction, which is for the moment, prepares for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all measure, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And then he goes on to say, For we know that if the earthly house in which we dwell be destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made by human hands, eternal in the heavens. And indeed in this present state we groan, yearning to be clothed over with that dwelling of ours, which is from heaven. If indeed we shall be found clothed and not naked, for we who are in this tent sigh under our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but rather clothed over, that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who made us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as its pledge. This is something, my dear friends, we must never forget. Nothing is too great for God. Nothing is too great for heaven. What awaits us in heaven is so far superior to anything that we have to endure in this life that we should be willing to do anything in order to gain this eternal life, this victory, this reward that is promised to us makes any suffering, any trial, any tri- tribulation in this life seem as nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. This glory far outweighs the price. And we don't even have to take St. Paul's word for this. He himself has seen heaven as he recounts in his again second epistle to the Corinthians. This time, chapter 12. If I must boast, it is not indeed expedient to do so, but I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, that he was caught up into paradise and heard secret words that man may not repeat. Of such a man I will boast, but of myself I will glory in nothing save in my infirmities. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I forbear lest any man should reckon me beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. St. Paul was caught up to heaven. He was shown secret visions, heard secret words where he himself says, I cannot even begin to imagine, ear cannot even begin to imagine what awaits us in heaven. It is so beautiful, so perfect, so victorious, that whatever we have to suffer in this life is nothing compared to what awaits us in heaven. How often do we think about heaven? How often do we consider what is awaiting us? What makes up heaven? We say, of course, the essence of heaven, the essential joy of heaven, is the beatific vision. This means that we will see God face to face, not with a physical eye, because, of course, God is a pure spirit. We will not see him with our eyes, but we will comprehend him with our mind. We will know God perfectly or as perfectly as we are capable of. Everything we've ever wanted to know about God that we are capable of knowing, we will know. And what's more, we will know everything that we've ever desired to know, but we will know it in God. Our knowledge will be perfect. We will spend our heaven contemplating God, thinking about God, loving God, constantly being drawn closer and closer to God. We will never be bored in heaven. There will always be something new, and yet we will always be satisfied. We will never be looking for something else. Heaven is so far beyond our material comprehension that from time to time we have to stop what makes heaven. It is the vision of God. It is to be with God for all eternity. It is to know God, it is to love God, and it is to rest in God. But what's more, we have certain accidental joys of heaven, those things that will add to our happiness, to our joy. There will, of course, be no suffering in heaven, no pain, no getting older, no cold, no hunger, no thirst. We will be always in the most perfect matter, matter we can possibly be. We will have the companionship of the saints, of the angels, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, We will have the companionship of all the elect. Please, God, we will meet one another in heaven. We will be able to spend our eternity with one another, rejoicing in the good that we have found, rejoicing in the goodness of God who has led us to salvation. What's more, anything at all that we can imagine that might add to our accidental joy, our glory, we will possess. Anything that could make us happy, St. Bridget of Ireland speaks of the rivers in heaven in one of her beautiful poems. And she says, the rivers in heaven will be made of beer. I said, I mean, how good is that? I mean, I can't wait. It's incredible. God has so many rewards, so many treasures for us in heaven that we cannot even comprehend. But it's something to look forward to with all of our heart. It's, look, it's something to desire with our inmost being. For St. Paul, heaven finally is a place of rest. It is the place in which we will rest. After all of the toils, after all of the trials, after all of the work we have to put in in this life, we will finally rest in heaven. And we will never again have to put forth that effort which we find so distasteful, so discouraging. Heaven will be a place in which we rest. St. Paul says so in his epistle to the Hebrews. Chapter 4. We then who have believed shall enter into this rest, even as he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And indeed his works were completed at the foundation of the world. For somewhere he spoke of the seventh day thus, and God rested the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, they shall not enter into my rest." Since then it follows that some are to enter into it, and they to whom it was first declared did not enter in because of unbelief, he again fixes another day to be today, fixes another day, saying by David after so long a time as quoted above, Today if you shall hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would never afterwards be speaking of another day. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest. For the people of God, for he who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his own works, even as God did from his. Let us therefore hasten to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall by following the same example of unbelief. Heaven will be a place in which we rest from worries, we rest from concerns, we rest from suffering, from sorrow. There will never again be temptation to deal with. We will never fall into sin. All we will have to look forward to is an eternity of beauty, of joy, of contemplation of God. We will never again have to worry about making a mistake. Never again have to worry about falling into sin. Never again have to worry about displeasing God. We will have achieved our goal. We will enter into this rest, and we will love God for all eternity. Our will will be fixed on God. It will be fixed on good. It will be fixed on the nobility that our Lord calls us to. And this should fill us with a great confidence an absolute confidence that if we rely on Christ, if we allow Christ to guide us, then we will gain eternal life. We will be happy for all eternity. We have nothing else to fear. We have nothing else to worry about. That's why the early Christians would often look forward to the second coming of Christ. They could not wait for the end of the world. They could not wait for Christ to come again because for them it was the entering into this rest They spoke of a paraousia in Greek, a presence, a second coming of Christ. It's why St. John the Apostle ends his beautiful book, The Apocalypse, with the words, Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's something to be desired. It's something to be longed for. But for St. Paul, it's very clear, this life of victory, this life of rest, this life of, of, of union with God can begin even in this life, through a life of grace, through a life of faith. It's what St. Paul will refer to as his doctrine of the whole Christ, the mystical body of Christ. As members of the mystical body, we have already entered into this rest. We have already entered into this victory of Christ. We are meant to share, even now, through a life of faith, through a life of grace. We are made members of Christ through grace. I quote to you from St. Paul in his epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. And coming, he announced the good tidings of peace to you who were afar off and a peace in those who were near, because through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, Therefore, you are now no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is closely fitted together and grown into a temple holy in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And then he goes on to say in chapter 4, And he himself gave some men of us apostles and some as prophets, others again as evangelists and others as pastors and teachers, in order to perfect the saints for a work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the deep knowledge of the Son of God, to perfect manhood, to the perfect measure of the fullness of Christ. And this he has done, that we may be now no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine devised in the wickedness of men and craftiness according to the wiles of error. Rather, are we to practice the truth in love and so grow up in all things in him who is the head Christ. For from him the whole body, being closely joined and knit together through every joint of the system, according to the functioning and due measure of each single part, derives its increase to the building up of itself in love. This is the beautiful doctrine of the mystical body. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the head, but he inspires each one of the members, each one of us, to do his or her part, to fill up what is wanting in Christ. Of course, there is nothing lacking in Christ. Our Lord is perfect But he has chosen that each one of us has a specific mission. Each one of us has a specific duty of state to perform in this life in order to fill up what our Lord wishes to be filled up. To do our part in the mystical body. And that's why we have some who are leaders, who are teachers. We have some who are workers, who are followers. We have some who are outspoken, some who are introverted. We have some who do great works. We have some who do humble works. Whatever it may be, Whatever task God assigns to you as a member of this mystical body, as a member of this whole Christ, you are to do that job and you are to do it to the very best of your ability with the greatest amount of love. And you will be doing your part in filling up the mystical body of Christ. And we will act as Christ because, again, he is our head. He inspires us. And that's why as members of the whole Christ, of the mystical body of Christ, we have an obligation to act as Christ, to carry ourselves as Christ, to live as Christ. St. Paul refers over and over again to this whole Christ. Christ is the head, we are the members. We are one with Christ. But our Lord himself, of course, used a very similar analogy In his great last discourse at the Last Supper, I quote to you from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 15. In this case, it's an analogy with a vine and its branches. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, he will take away, and every branch that bears fruit, he will cleanse, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it remains on the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does... if anyone does not abide in me, he shall be cast outside as the branch and wither, and they shall gather them up and cast them into the fire, and they shall burn. If you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done to you. And this is my Father glorified, that you may bear very much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, as I also have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. We are, as members of this mystical body, as members of the whole Christ, we are meant to bear fruit. And if we bear fruit, if we follow the commandments... If we love God with our whole heart, mind, and soul, then we will be special friends of Christ. We will abide in his love, and he will abide in us. We will be engrafted in this vine. We will be branches that are brought into this vine, and we will live the life of Christ. The medieval poet Dante Alighieri In his classic work, The Divine Comedy in the Paradiso, he uses the analogy of a rose, a mystical rose, to show the beauty and the working relationship of the elect in heaven and the members of the mystical body of Christ. For Dante, the elect are represented in the form of a pure white rose, and the angels, like bees, fly back and forth from God to to the elect, transporting his love to them. And they spend an eternity bringing God's love to the members, and the members are united in that love, and then they, the angels bring their love back to God, and there's a transportation of love. Let me just read you a brief snippet of Canto 31. So now appearing to me in the form of a white rose was heaven's sacred host, those whom with his own blood Christ made his bride while the other host that soaring see and sing the glory of the one who stirs their love, the goodness which made them great as they are, like bees that in a single motion swarm and dip into the flowers, then return to heaven's hive where their toil turns to joy, descended all at once on that great bloom of precious petals, and then flew back up to where its source of love dwells forever. Their faces showed the glow of living flame, their wings of gold and all the rest of them whiter than any snow that falls to earth. As they entered the flower tier to tier, each spread the peace and ardor of the love they gathered with their wings in flight to him. Nor did this screen of flying plenitude between the flower and what reigned above impede the vision of his glorious light. For God's light penetrates the universe according to the merits of each part, and there is nothing that can block its way. This unimperiled kingdom of all joy, abounding with those saints both old and new, had look and love fixed all upon one goal. O triune light, which sparkles in one star upon their sight, fulfiller of full joy, look down upon us in our tempest here." quite beautiful. For Dante, the union of members of this mystical body of the communion of saints was a union of uninterrupted love between God himself and each one of his members. The Individual souls are like lights in this mystical rose, shining radiantly as reflections of the light and love of God. It's quite beautiful to think in heaven we will remain as individuals, Our Lord Jesus Christ desires a personal union with each one of us, and that union will be perfect in heaven. It's not some sort of a strange conglomeration like the false religions who believe in nirvana, in which you somehow disappear as an individual. No, in heaven, we will be individuals. We will be loved as individuals, and we will recognize one another as individuals, but individuals who have been transformed in Christ, who now live the perfect life of charity, who shine radiantly with the reflection of God. And we will love one another for all eternity because we love God in one another. We see God in one another. That reflection is so perfect now in us that every soul we encounter in heaven will remind us of the glory of God, will shine radiantly with the love of God. And so that we will be surrounded, we will be engulfed like this mystical rose in the pure love of God. And we will never lose that We will never have it diminished. We will never tire of it. We have a beautiful example of an understanding on a human level of this victory, of this call to union, this call to grace in the example of St. John the Evangelist, the only one of the apostles who remained faithful enough to stand at the foot of the cross on Calvary, the beloved disciple, That's how St. John refers to himself in his gospel, as the one that Jesus loved. He was so overwhelmed by the fact that he was special to our Lord, that he couldn't even name himself. And so he simply referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. St. John, of course, was the beloved disciple, the best friend of our Lord, the virgin apostle, the son of thunder. He and his brother, St. James, the sons of Zebedee, were known as the sons of thunder because of their fiery temperaments. St. John, of course, one day through the intercession of his mother had asked our Lord if he and his brother could sit at the right and the left hand of God in heaven, the left and right hand of Christ in heaven. And our Lord simply asked them, can you drink of the chalice that I have set for you? And they simply answered, yes, we can. This was a man who desired heaven. This was a man who desired this union with God. As I said, at first he ran away like the other apostles during the Passion of Christ. But love was so strong in the heart of St. John that he could not keep himself from our Lord. And so he followed him all the way to the foot of Calvary. It is St. John, of course, who has given the Blessed Virgin Mary as his mother. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Our Lord gave to St. John what was most precious to him, and that was his blessed mother. And of course, our Lord gave our lady to St. John, and St. John represents each one of us. It is to us that our Lord gives us our lady as our mother. It is St. John who in his gospel will define God as charity. Deus caritas est. God is charity. Because after all, it was St. John who rested on the sacred heart of our Lord at the Last Supper. It was St. John who our Lord revealed the inmost secrets of his sacred heart. And thus it's no wonder that it is St. John, of all the evangelists, who records our Lord's last discourse, this beautiful song of love that our Lord expressed to his apostles as he was about to leave them. I quote to you from the Gospel of St. John. Chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Were it not so, I should have told you, because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there also you may be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where thou art going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would also have known my Father. And henceforth, you do know him, and you have seen him. St. John is known as the apostle of love. He speaks very beautifully in his gospel, in his epistles, Of charity, this love of God, this love of neighbor, which must manifest itself in everything we do, which must motivate us in everything that we do. It is Saint John who is the great Apostle of victory, who understands very clearly what awaits us in heaven, what awaits us for a life of union with Christ. He says so in his first epistle, chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot loves also the one begotten of him. In this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome because all that is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is there that overcomes the world if not he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's very consoling, very beautiful. We will overcome the world. Nothing that the world has to offer can stop us from this victory. No matter what the enemies of Christ, no matter what the enemies of the church throw at us, we will overcome this world because Christ himself has overcome this world. And all of these enemies of Christ, all of these heathens and pagans and blasphemers will in the end receive their punishment and we who suffer at their hands, we who are tortured at their hands, we will receive an eternal crown of glory in heaven. God will not be mocked. Everything will be settled. And our victory is absolutely assured. So no matter what this world throws at us, they cannot touch us. They cannot harm us. We have already, already won this victory. Because Christ himself has won this victory. And this victory will end in an eternal glory, an eternal union with God in heaven. We should be so consoled by this. That's why it is to Saint John, finally, that he has given the beautiful vision of the apocalypse, the book of Revelations, on the island of patmos toward the end of his life he sees a vision of christ in heaven the lame slain the, the slain the lamb slain forever and yet never dies this vision of christ in heaven the final victory of christ over the antichrist over the devil himself st john sees all of this And that's why he can end the sacred scriptures by asking for our Lord's second coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This is what he was desiring. This is what he was waiting for. This is what he longed for. Holy Mother Church finally gives us also a beautiful reflection on this victory, this beauty, this joy that awaits us in heaven through the various actions of the Paschal Vigil one of the great ceremonies of the liturgical year. Begins, of course, outside where the priest lights or blesses the, 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 the Paschal fire and then lights the Paschal candle, which represents Christ himself. And then he enters the darkened church with the light of Christ until finally he rested in the, the stand for the candle. And then immediately the priest or deacon chants the great exultet, which is the church's song of victory, of triumph, of joy. Let me just quote to you the first part of this beautiful exultet. Let the angelic choirs of heaven now rejoice. Let the divine mysteries give praise, and let the trumpet of salvation sound forth the victory of so great a king. Let the earth also rejoice, made radiant by such splendor, and enlightened with the brightness of the eternal king. Let it know that the darkness of the whole world is scattered. Let our mother the church also rejoice, adorned with the brightness of so great a light, and let this temple resound with the loud acclamations of the people. Wherefore I beseech you, most beloved brethren, who are here present in this one, in the wondrous brightness of this holy light, to invoke with me the mercy of Almighty God, that he who has deigned to admit me among the Levites without any merits of mine would pour forth the brightness of his light upon me and enable me to perfect the praise of this wax candle." Through our Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, who liveth and reigneth with him in the unity of the Holy Ghost, one God. And then he continues, It is fitting indeed and just to proclaim with all our hearts and all the affection of our minds and with the ministry of our voices, the invisible God, the Father Almighty, and his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who repaid for us to his eternal Father, the debt of Adam, and by the merciful shedding of his blood, canceled the guilt incurred by original sin. For this is the Paschal festival in which that true lamb is slain, with whose blood the doorposts of the faithful are consecrated. This is the night in which thou didst formerly cause our forefathers, the children of Israel, when brought out of Egypt to pass through the Red Sea with dry feet. This, therefore, is the night which dissipated the darkness of sinners by the light of the pillar. This is the night which at this time throughout the world restores to the grace and unites in sanctity those who believe in Christ and are separated from the vices of the world and the darkness of sinners. This is the night in which, destroying the chains of death, Christ arose victorious from the grave, for it would have profited us nothing to have been born unless redemption had also been bestowed upon us. O wondrous condescension of thy mercy towards us, O inestimable affection of love, that thou mightest redeem a slave, thou didst deliver up thy son. O truly needful sin of Adam, which was blotted out by the death of Christ, O happy fault that merited to have such and so great a Redeemer. O truly blessed night, which alone deserved to know the time and hour when Christ rose again from the dead. This is the night of which it is written, and the night shall be as clear as the day, and the night is my light and my pleasures. Therefore, the sanctification of this night puts to flight all wickedness, cleanses sin and restores innocence to the fallen, and gladness to the sorrowful. It drives forth hatreds, it prepares concord, and brings down haughtiness. It beautifully expresses the joy we should experience in understanding the victory is upon us, and understanding that we are called to share in this victory, that we are together members of the mystical body. It's why Holy Mother Church has us chant the beautiful litany of the saints during this Paschal Vigil, to remind us of the communion of saints that to which we belong, to remind us of the union that we have with the angels and saints in heaven, how they intercede for us how they look after us, and how they await us in heaven. Further on in the ceremony, Holy Mother Church has us then renew our baptismal promises, a reminder that we have been baptized in Christ, that we have died to the old man, that we have been brought to a share in this victory. And because of that, we renounce all that would stand in the way. We renounce Satan and his pomps and his works. We make an act of faith in our Lord and his church. But before we renew the promises, Holy Mother Church has the priest very beautifully say, Dearly beloved brethren, on this night, on this most holy night, Holy Mother the church calling to mind the death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ keeps a vigil for him, returning love for love. She rejoices exceedingly while celebrating his glorious resurrection. But since, as the apostles teach, we have been buried with Christ by baptism unto death, we also must walk in the newness of life, just as Christ has arisen from the dead, knowing that the old man in us has been crucified along with Christ, so that we may no longer serve sin. Therefore, let us realize that we are dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Finally, then, of course, we celebrate the beautiful Mass of Easter Sunday, the first Mass of Easter Sunday. And the joy of Holy Mother Church bursts forth in the return of the Alleluia at Mass. It's a reminder of the victory, of the joy we should feel in this union with God as being a member of the mystical body of Christ, as being part of the whole Christ. And so, my dear faithful, As we end this parish mission, we are reminded of the victory that is ours. We are reminded of the reward that awaits us, Christ in glory, union with God, the vision of God, an eternal rest, an eternal joy, an eternal love. We must desire this. We must work for this. We must rejoice in this, and we must be willing to do whatever it takes to gain this eternal reward. Eye has not seen nor ear has heard what awaits you in heaven. Our Lord even now is preparing a mansion for you. Will we work for that? Will we desire that? Will we do whatever it takes to gain that? Christ must be everything to us. And so as we end this parish mission in the spirit of St. Paul, please, God, let us be able to say with St. Paul, both now and for all eternity, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.